And that's, that's what we're about here. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray and get started, and then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about what we'll do over the next hour. Lord, I just pray for anyone who's scared about me saying an hour that you would help them to get through this next time. Help them to adjust to what we do here at Redemption Hill. Help them to enjoy it. But most of all, help us all to truly hear from you at this point. We hear lots of other people speak throughout the week. And I'm speaking this morning, my voice is the one speaking, but, but we, we believe that when we open the Bible, it's a chance for us to hear your living voice coming to us so that we as your people might have guidance for the lives that we live here, that we might be your people as you designed for us to be in front of others. Um, and, and most importantly, we ask that we would bring you glory by everything that's said here and by how we respond to it as a, as a people. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. We, we have... In my house, we have a little, a little people Velcro advent calendar. Now, some of, you, some of you don't know who the little people are, but you will one day. God willing, you will. The little people, Fisher Price, you, you can look it up online. Google it, little people. We've got a Velcro advent calendar, and it, it, I love the way it works because it starts with December 1st. And it's got like a, a little pocket with the date on it from there. So every day of December leading up to the 25th, where you have like little baby Jesus in the pocket. So the girls love this. I, but some of you don't know, I have three daughters. One will be born in March, if everything goes according to plan. The other two, Kira will be four in February, and Brianna is two. She just turned two on December 5th. So my four-year-old, almost four-year-old daughter, my two-year-old daughter, love fighting over who gets to take out the little, the little people person for this day. And so I forget when it was. I think it was the 18th. It was about a week before Christmas. It was Brianna's turn to take out the, the little thing in the, in the 18. And so she runs up to the calendar with Kira, and she takes it out, and she proceeds to stick it onto one of the little Velcro circles on the top half um, that completes a nativity scene. So Brianna takes it and climbs up on the little hope chest that we have there and reaches up to put this thing there, and she heads straight for the manger. And I, I mean, it was, it was almost dangerous. Kira tackles her. No, Brianna, that's Jesus' spot. And I, it hit me when she said it, as funny and as cute as it was, that's one of the most important things we do for each other as Christians, isn't it? We make sure that we never let any of us put anything in Jesus' spot. We make sure that nothing takes Jesus' spot in our hearts or in the life of our church. And, and so that, that was just a fresh reminder for me about this is what we're about here, is making sure that Jesus has his rightful place in the world, first in our hearts and then all throughout the world as we carry this message of who he is and what he's done. So let me, with that, let me, let me get into what we're going to do today. We're going to read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 again. Now, I, I feel like we're running on a treadmill here today, Robert Greene. Something's happening, something good. But we're just, it looks like we're not really going anywhere. Because Robert read through Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, two weeks ago. And I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. Please, I was so moved by, by what Robert said two weeks ago. Uh, and it just, it's been with me ever since. And I'm really trying to think about how, how, I can, how I can apply this and how we can apply it in our home. But let me read it really quickly for us, and then I'll, I'll get into what I think the Lord would want me to say to you this morning. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists 
arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, that is the twelve, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Verse 7 is certainly the main point of this passage. And for those of you who preach, I'm looking at, at Tim Gleason, Sean Graves, and a number of you out there that maybe I don't even know, but you preach. Uh, this is one of the best things you can do in preaching, is you, you find out what's the main point of the passage, and you do your best to let the main point of your message be the main point of the passage. And it, so here it is, verse 7. The word of God continued to increase... And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is where this passage is taking us. And, and, and as soon as you read this, if you had read the whole book of Acts up to this point, you would very quickly remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So without losing your place here, flip there. Flip there. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip there. Right before Jesus when on his return trip to heaven, he, he said this to his apostles. Or to the, actually a group greater than his apostles. It was about 120 of them who had, who had followed him sincerely before he had, he had been taken up. And in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is an outline for the rest of the book of Acts, by the way. So the rest of the book of Acts takes you from this point to the story of how the church, under the power of the Holy Spirit, actually successfully completes this mission. So you'll see the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ first through, Jude through Jerusalem, then throughout Judea and Samaria in chapters 7 and 8, um, and then throughout the ends of the earth, primarily through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, starting in verse, or rather in chapter 9 and beyond. So you see, for now, we've been through this section here where the, the gospel is going out through the city of Jerusalem. It's going to culminate with the, the martyrdom of Stephen in chapter 7, and we'll get into that very soon. If someone else is preaching, probably next week, right? Because they'll actually move you forward, all right? But here we are. You, you see that the, what's happening, what Jesus wanted to happen was happening through the life of this church. And what I want to do this week is to say, as we enter this new year, 2011, together, that's what we want to be able, we want people to be able to say that about us. Robert Greene's been asking us, in 30 or 40 years, the time span, the 30 years, 40 years that, that we see covered throughout the book of Acts, what will, what will be said about us as a church, Redemption Hill Church, in that time period? After 40 years, what will heaven say about us? What will other people say about us? Will, will they be able to say not in spite of, but rather in light of that church being there in Richmond, Virginia. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples 
multiplied greatly. And some of the most outspoken opponents of the faith were becoming obedient to Jesus Christ. Will they be able to say this was a church that never allowed anything to take Jesus' place? No matter how good or important that other thing was. If that's going to be the case, then there are some things in this passage in verses 1 through 6 that we're going to have to see increasingly characterize us. And I want to point those out one at a time. So follow me with you, would you, in, in verse 1. Now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. And when that was going on, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. The Hellenists being the Greek-speaking Jews, the, the Hebrews being the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And a complaint arises from one against the other because the widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, Robert did a phenomenal job two weeks ago showing us how this complaint was no longer simply about a process that needed to be improved. There are some people who are falling through the cracks. They're not being taken care of the way they need to be. No, this complaint was from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. It had become very personal, which is the nature of our complaints, is it not? It's never just about a process that needs to be improved. It very quickly becomes a personal attack against the people we think are responsible for improving it. Nobody else? Isn't that the way it works? Any, am I talking to anybody? Is that how it works in your house, your husband or your wife? Doesn't it become personal, your complaint? Okay, all right. I, I thought I was preaching to sinful people. All right. Let me know if I need to adjust. <laughs> That's how it works for me. All right, so it's a, it becomes very personal, and we see that here, that it's against the Hebrews. And the reason, what I want to do this week is just point out a little bit about when and why this complaint comes to life. And you see it here in verse 1. It says that in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose because certain widows were being neglected in the, what does your Bible say, in the... Daily distribution. Some of you, daily distribution of food. Now watch this. Isn't it easy to overlook the great things that had to be in place? The great things accomplished by God's grace among us that had to be there even before we could have the opportunity to complain about whatever we're complaining about? If we're, if we're going to be the kind of church that, that does verse 7, we're first going to be the kind of church that learns to apply the gospel to our complaints. Which, everyone look at me. If you haven't figured this out yet, which will rise up in our hearts from time to time? Which will become very personal, one against the other? Against your leaders, against other people, that's going to happen. The, the question is not, is it going to happen? The question is, how will we as God's people respond? And will we apply the gospel to our complaints? Sin is a given. It will happen. Will we apply the gospel to it? So what I want to do here is, is show you a little bit about how, just personally, I'm learning to apply the gospel to my complaints, and hopefully this will become increasingly characteristic of all of us. But you see here in verse 1 that there are some great things going on. People are coming to faith. They're getting saved. They're, they're coming to Jesus Christ in droves. There are thousands by this time. And we also see that there's a daily distribution of food. I mean, what a great thing. 
what, are you, what are you overlooking as you complain about, think about what you're complaining about, about your own church right now. And this is an intentional pause to help you remember what you're complaining about. The assumption that you are complaining about something is there. For some of you, that may not be the case, and God bless you, but for the rest of us, think about it. And pastors are not exempt from this, are, are we, Robert? No, no, we've got, we probably got more complaints about our, our church than you guys, believe it or not. We actually see more of what's happening. We, we have more reasons to complain. But watch this. Here's what I'm learning. Uh, it's, it's really interesting that we mentioned memorizing the book of Philippians. Because that's where I want you to turn without losing your place here. Philippians chapter 2. At the very end of, of Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that it has been granted to us on behalf of Jesus Christ, not, not simply to believe in Him, but also to suffer with Him, seeing that we have the same struggle that, that Paul had, and now here that he still has. And then he goes into to chapter 2, and he says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love and being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done from selfishness or ambition, blind ambition, vain ambition, conceit. But instead, he says, in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. And let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but instead he humbled himself he made himself of no reputation coming in the form of a servant and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on the cross and therefore God has highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And therefore, my brothers, as you have always obeyed, not just in my, in my, or let me, let me, he says, therefore, brothers, what does he say right after that? Therefore, brothers, I got to look it up. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my brothers, as you have always obeyed, not just in my absence, but also in my presence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And right after recapping the gospel, and he, he begins to apply it, and he says, therefore, just as you've always obeyed, do so more and more. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling together because God is working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Then he, watch the next thing he says is, therefore, do all things without complaining or disputing. Do all things without complaining or disputing. One of the very first applications of this gospel was that the church should do all things without complaining. And this is what I'm learning is, is that's one of the first things God is concerned about with his church. He looks down at us and his verdict has been passed. You guys are a complaining people. But this is not to be characteristic of the children of God. The gospel is to be applied to our complaints. And you notice there's a therefore in between the statement of the gospel and the rule to not complain. So I don't want to just say to the church this morning, hey, stop complaining because good Christians shouldn't do that. 
And then we'll all become great moralists and we'll look down our noses at everybody that isn't as good at we, as we are at not complaining. And that's not the goal here. The goal is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, which produces humility in us, and apply that to our complaining hearts. And so what I'm seeing in, in the passage of Philippians is, wow, Jesus, if you look at anybody who could say, I deserve more from people than I'm getting, it would be Jesus. Yet Jesus, who in the very form of God, what does he do? He makes himself of no reputation. He comes in our likeness. He says, I deserve, basically, I deserve to be worshipped and praised by everybody I've created. But that's not really what I'm getting from people right now. There's a lot that needs to be fixed. But you know what Jesus does? He humbles himself, makes himself of no reputation, lays aside whatever right he believes to what he deserves... And without completely letting go of that, because he's going to demand it, he, he humbles himself and is still able to serve us. He humbles himself and is still able to join us in addressing our problem. So watch, here's what I'm learning. I need to become more like Christ. And I need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. And so what I need is, okay, here, Lord, a complaint has risen up in my heart. I've still got some time before it comes out of my mouth. Not much time. Right? Because they'll tell you in the office, I'm at the beginning stages of really learning what it means to be quick to listen to slow to speak and slow to become angry. And I'm really bad at it right now. But God's at work in my heart. But whatever time we have between complaint here, complaint there, there's an opportunity for the gospel to go to work and for us to remember Jesus who humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, Consider the interests of others rather than just his own interests. And we apply the gospel to our complaining hearts in that way. So here are some questions I've, I've begun to ask myself. And hopefully these will be helpful to you. I look at my, my, my Acts chapter 6 verse 1 lesson and, and Philippians chapter 2 lesson. And I say, Lord, what achievements of your grace am I overlooking as I complain about some process in my church? What good things from you had to be in place among us before I could even have the opportunity to complain about those things? And then I take a moment to thank God for those achievements of his grace. And it's, it's doing wonders for me. I just thought I would share that with you because I, my hope is that it will do wonders for you as well. I assume that you, like me, have complaints from time to time and that you, like me, need Jesus to help you. Is that a valid assumption? If we're going to be the kind of church that, that joins others in, in seeing Acts chapter 6, verse 7 go out through us, then we're going to have to be a church that, that applies the gospel to our complaints. The second thing that I think needs to increasingly characterize us, um, we can see in verses 2 through 4. We're going to need to be a church where every member, everybody say every. Everybody say member. Every member. Of this church will need to have the same conviction that we see in the apostles in verse 2 through 4. Every member, not just the leaders, not just the pastors, not just the community leaders, not just whatever kind, whoever you guys identify as leaders, not just them, every member. Everybody say every member. Okay, verse 2. The 12, hearing of this problem, summoned the whole church, the full number of the disciples. And I'll come back to that word disciples at some point later. 
but they summon everybody in the church together. And here's, listen cl- closely to what they said. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, I'm, I'm leaning on what Robert said here two weeks ago because he said it so well. Again, go back and hear the message. They are not saying here that we are above serving the widows. I don't think, I don't think any of us would want to, to feel like we're in a church where the pastors are saying, somebody else is going to have to do that because we're above that. That's not what's being said here in this passage. They are acknowledging the dire need for these widows' needs to be met. And they consider it so important that they've actually summoned the whole church together to address it. So this is not something they're just saying, we need somebody. But here's here's what they are saying. They're saying there's something else that is also an, an incredible priority in the church. And as far as it pertains to the overseers of the church, that thing must remain their primary responsibility. This is very important for the whole church to understand. Now we know that the entire church in Acts chapter 6 got this. The entire church had this conviction. Not just that in this particular time it was not wise for the overseers to stop the preaching of God's word in order to wait on tables. They didn't, say it just, they didn't just say it isn't wise for us to do this. Look at verse 2 very closely. What do they say? This is very important. It is not right for us to do this. Every, I want everyone in Redemption Hill Church to look at me. Look at me. Just give me your full attention for a moment. <clears throat> the easiest thing to do is to take the sum total of our past experience with churches and pastors and to allow those to be the things which most shape our expectations of our current pastors. It is the easiest thing to do. And it is one of the worst things to do. It's very normal. It's very easy. And it's potentially very dangerous. The scriptures and what we see in the scriptures as the requirement of overseers is the foremost thing that should determine our expectations of our current pastors. And one of the places in the scriptures that give us a little bit of insight into what we should expect of our pastors and overseers of the church is right here in Acts chapter 6. These are to be men who never allow anything to take the place of prayer and the preaching of God's word. They are not to allow any other important need or administrative task that must be done in the life of the church take that spot on their schedule. Somebody else has to do it if the church is going to be healthy. I'm going to say that again. Everyone look at me. Somebody else has to do it if the church is going to be healthy. And that somebody else is sitting right here. Now, if that is not straight in our hearts, we're going to find ourselves back in point number one quite often, complaining about what our pastors are not doing. 
They're not fixing all these processes. They're not doing it quickly enough. I'm, I'm only 13 years into this being a Christian thing. I don't know that much. The church is a spiritual entity. Its roots and its origins are in heaven. I don't understand these things. All I know is that when I take the truth that God has revealed to me, he says that the overseers of his churches have to be men who are, I mean, their, their forehead is set like a, just prayer and the ministry of the word to God's people for the health of God's church and the prosperity of God's mission in the world to bring people to Christ. And you, you, you get overseers, elders, pastors, shepherds, bishops, whatever you want to call them. You get men at the highest level of authority and leadership in a church who take their eyes off of that. That church is on the decline. I don't know how long it's going to take you to be able to see that that church is on the decline, but it already is. Now, that has very real implications for us at Redemption Hill Church. And one of them is that it will always be the case that some things in this church will happen much more slowly than you and I want them to. Everybody say always. Things will get better. But it will never be the case that we will not take our sinful eyes and set them on something that needs to be improved improve without the opportunity for us to complain. It is always going to be the case. And in fact, I teach my almost four-year-old daughter at this point. Whenever she starts to complain and get impatient, I say to her, I say, Kira, think about how awful it would be if everything happened when you wanted it to, the way that you wanted it to. When would you ever have the opportunity to develop patience, which is so precious to God? It's a good thing that everything doesn't happen when we want it to. It's a good thing that everything doesn't happen when we want it to. Now ask, my, ask my daughter to sing that song. It's a good thing that everything doesn't happen when we want it to. Because if it did, we would never have the chance to develop patience which is one of the primary agendas of the Holy Spirit as it concerns us. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. We want to get things done. The Holy Spirit wants us to be patient. Sorry, guys, we're stuck being the church. We're stuck in a world ruled by a God who often has a different agenda than we do. And he is going to win. And the rest of us had better just get along with that whole idea very soon. And in the meantime, we'll work as diligently as we can to address all those important issues. And everybody say amen, even if you don't like it. That's good because we're not up here to tell you what you like to hear. We're, we're up here to open the Bible and bring out truth and help us all to apply it. So there we are. We're, we're through point number two. I, I, I was going to say something else about this. Um, 
But I'll just let you read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17 on your own. Do we have a slide with that thing on it? I'm not sure. We may not have much of a slideshow at all. That's all right. We were, we were enjoying Christmas and New Year's this past weekend. But, but you'll notice there that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, as you get to the end of the chapter, he says, Timothy, as for you, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful or profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God will be competent and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And if you read right through that big number four, he says, I urge you therefore in, in the... What does he say? I urge you, therefore, before God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. If, overseer Timothy, if you want people to be thoroughly equipped for every good work to which God has called the church, if, overseer Timothy, you want people to be trained in righteousness, that they might be a good example of what it means to be a child of God before others who don't yet know Christ, if you want them to be able to do these things, I charge you, therefore, before God and Jesus Christ, who will judge the world, preach the word. Pastors are commanded to have a fixation on prayer and preaching the word because Christ will judge the world. These are convictions that every member of this church has to have. Now, I know that every member of the early church had this conviction because of what it says in verse 5. And of all the wonderful miracles we see in the book of Acts, this is the least talked about miracle, but it is a miracle. Make no mistake about it. You gather together thousands of Christians who have a, a complaint with accompanying gossip circling among them. And watch this, you gather them together, the leaders of the church stand up and they look at everybody and they say, it isn't right for us to be the ones to put our own hands to the thing that you just made us aware of. Somebody else has to do it. Verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Are you kidding me? What a miracle! That, that's hard enough for me to achieve in my own house, and there are only four of us right now. And what Daddy said pleased the whole gathering. Just doesn't work that way. Thousands of people here. It pleased everyone. Why? Because they all had the same conviction that they just heard come out of their leaders' mouths. They all believed it wouldn't be right for them to abandon, not, it's not wrong for them to serve widows. It would be wrong for them to abandon the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word in order to do it. I was scheduled to be back in the toddler room with my wife this morning. So it's not wrong for us to do these kinds of things. It just, just so happened that I, I had to be the one who was preaching this morning. And so, because we have church members with this conviction, three people immediately volunteered to, be, to take my place. 
Joni Jones can't be here today, but she volunteered. She and her almost two-year-old daughter, Stella, are a little bit sick, so they're at home. Shoshan Bedalion immediately volunteers. And, and, and we couldn't even avail ourselves of her generous offer because Laura Hewitt beat her to it. But this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. So I'm not saying we're not a church like this. We just need to be increasingly characterized by it. Does that make sense? So if we're going to be in Acts chapter 6, verse 7 church, we've got to first be able to apply the gospel to our complaints. And we need every single member to have this conviction that the primary, primary responsibility of the overseers of the church is prayer and the ministry of the word. Last thing I think that needs to characterize us over time is we need to be able to move from the beginning of Acts chapter 6, verse 5 to the rest of it. And my question for us today is, how do you do that? Let's look at verse 5 again. What they said pleased the whole gathering. That's, that's all well and good. The people are pleased by the convictions they see in their leaders. Great. But now, the word about what we need to do comes forward, and, and here's what it is. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose... Or here's what the people did. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. Now, I don't know how much time passed between that church meeting where, praise God, holy miracle, everyone was pleased at what was said during the church meeting. I still can't get over it. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a miracle. May it be. One day. May it be. There's obviously some time between that and when they choose these seven men. Or maybe they got it all done in that meeting. I don't know. Here's what I do know. Something had to be in place in this church for them to be able to say, thank you, pastors. We've got it from there. How did they come to know each other well enough that they could choose these seven men? They had all recently come to faith in Christ. I'm assuming they didn't all know each other. Their common bond was what we have in common. We all love Jesus Christ. We all have been called to belong to Him and to love Him faithfully and to serve Him and to, and to spread the news about Him and what He's done and dying for our sins on the cross and giving us access to a, a relationship with God and with Him that can never be separated as Chris read earlier brought us into an inheritance of an eternal kingdom that will never perish and we can enjoy this forever. And that's what we all have in common. But and how did they know each other so well that they were able to say, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, how did, how did that happen? Here at Redemption Hill Church, we want to be the kind of church that is able to do that as well. Needs arise for the life and health of the church. The overseers of the church cannot be the primary ones to put their hands to addressing it. We need other people in the church to be the primary ones who do that. And we need to find people who are full of the spirit and of wisdom to take care of that particular issue. And we need to be the kind of church where all of us who sit here in these chairs, which includes me most, most weeks, can look around and say, Jeremiah Winters, Mitch Tolson, Chrissy Black, 
Jake Booth, Rick Collins, Mike Knoll. We, we need to be that kind of church. Does that make sense? Uh, that, that is the kind of thing that has to characterize us. Now, now so let me, let me get very practical. How is that going to happen here in the life of this church? Well, well, if you haven't heard about it before, let me introduce you to our, our Redemption Hill communities. This is the kind of thing that you hear our bald pastor talking about all the time. Where's Chris? I don't have to... See, the lights are on, so I don't have to look very long. There it is, just bouncing off at a 45-degree angle. This is the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Our communities are the... Everybody listen. The primary structure in our church for seeing these kinds of relationships happen, for seeing us take what we're being taught on Sundays or or in gatherings like this and to see those things actually have hands and feet, to see them played out in our lives. And and we've, we've identified some, well, we call them identities. We've looked through the Bible and we found some things that the Bible says are descriptive words or phrases about God's people, the church. And we've landed on the four words, family, ambassadors, disciples, and servants. Fads. Although this is not a fad, right? It's going to stick. It's going to stick. But families, ambassadors, disciples, servants. And what we're endeavoring to do is, as we are no longer just gathered together as a whole church, but as we go into life throughout the rest of the week, We also have other gatherings. We gather together in these smaller communities and we have a chance to remember and apply what it is we heard in in a setting like Sunday morning. And we we live out life together as communities. And so some of the things that are common here, again, I don't think there will be any slides, but let me walk through these one by one. Let's take family, the identity of family. Well, we get that from places in the Bible like Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, well, it takes me too long. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is very popular. It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For, verse 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. You always find the Bible speaking about the church in terms of family. That we're we're spoken of as many brothers to Jesus Christ. Bless you. God is spoken of as our heavenly Father. Jesus is known as the Son of God. And in fact, in Mark, Mark, I believe it's Mark chapter 3, if I'm getting this right. But in Mark chapter 3, near the end of that chapter there, you even see this this one little passage where Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters, I suppose, are waiting outside for him, and he's he's just taking too long to teach. He preached long sermons, apparently, as well. We're in good company, Robert Greene. But in in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 33, Jesus answered those who were saying, your mother and brothers are waiting for you. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, 
He is my brother and sister and mother. So the, the, the language of family is all throughout the Bible for the church of God. And so we, we speak about what it means and looks like for us to be a family. And so we, we'll say things like this. We are children of God who live and care for each other as a family. And one of the practical ways that we do that in our communities is that typically, you know, whether it's weekly or monthly or every other week, whatever the case is, I actually like the British term fortnight. I just thought I'd throw that in there. So if it's weekly or once a fortnight or once a month, whatever the case is, there's usually some sort of gathering around the table, right? So we don't just gather in a gym around the Word. We also gather around the Word at the table. And we enjoy God's blessings. And together we share a meal, and it's a constant reminder to us that we as people have needs that have to be met from something outside of us. We, We as people can't provide this for each other, It has to be met. Our life must be sustained by something that is outside of us. And it reminds us, doesn't it, of the righteousness that is outside of us that we must have. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. That alone makes us acceptable to God. We must be satisfied by and sustained by something. And we can only be accepted by God by something that comes from the outside. And something as simple as eating reminds us of that if we apply the gospel to it. And we eat unto God, not as unto ourselves. We we also remember that we're ambassadors. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, or somewhere around there. You guys don't mind if I take a little bit of time to find this in my Bible? Because I figure that's what all of you have to do. So this is, I'll just kind of stick that under that category there instead of telling you that I, I didn't have my Bible prepared to save time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. So this message of the gospel comes through us as ambassadors to others who must be reconciled to God. We are family. We are ambassadors. We are, we're disciples. You see that in Acts chapter 6. It says when the full number of disciples were gathered. The number of disciples were increasing. And, and that word disciples, I used to think it only referred to the original 12 followers of Christ. But that's not the case. Disciples is a, is a term broadly applied to every follower of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you know that, but some of you are perhaps like I was 13 years ago, where you think of the disciples as just those 12. But no, the disciples is a a very popular word in the Bible for the average follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament, if I'm not mistaken. But you'll see it in Acts chapter 11 when we eventually get there, because someone else is preaching. But it Disciples is, is, is not a weird word. It's a very good Bible word for followers of Jesus Christ. And so 
we say here that we take responsibility for our own discipleship, that is a life of honoring Jesus Christ and following him, as well as the discipleship of others. First beginning with our own families and then the rest of the church as it is lived out through our communities and the other relationships that God gives us with members of the church here. So we take our responsibility, and that includes, I said members, but technically we have a membership idea that doesn't encompass everybody you see. That includes other people who are not technically members at this point. There, there are relationships God has given us, and we, we seek to live out these identities in all of those relationships. Family, ambassadors, disciples, servants. Now, obviously, you don't have to go too far in the Bible to find language like that where, where we're referred to as servants. I'm just going to, I'm going to look at one in Mark chapter 10. And I, when I say that, I'm always hoping... I'm always hoping that that's a, if it's not, I'll find you one that actually has it. But in Mark chapter 10, Jesus teaches a great lesson here for the church about service. And starting in verse 42, Jesus said to his disciples after they were jostling for positions of power within the church, he says, "You you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So Jesus calls us to this kind of greatness as Christians and as a church. The greatness that comes from being a servant to all. Whoever would be first, verse 44, among you must be the slave or servant of all. So here at Redemption Hill, we, we, we seek to actually live these things out. It, it, and primarily, again, the, the, when you look at the structures that we have intentionally sought to create as church leaders, this is the primary structure for us that enables us to live out our gospel-shaped identities that we see in the Bible, our, our Redemption Hill communities. We're living as family, as ambassadors, everybody as disciples and as Servants. Say it one more time with me. Family. Great. And you should know where to find that in your Bible. So that, so that it doesn't just end with us or with your leaders or with Chris, our favorite bald pastor, sitting here beating that drum. But th- this is something which characterizes all of us at Redemption Hill. Which leads me, and I'll, I'll, I'll close kind of with this idea, which leads me to my very big problem. I'm not currently in one of these. And neither is Robert. I'll tell on Robert. Which, which is, you know, which is something I, I think we need to think about and address because it, it, if we're going to call the church to this and say that this is the primary way that we're going to try to live this out together, then we, we're going to have to make an effort to be in. Now, I have this over Robert Green. I used to be in one. <laughs> ah, I used to be in one. Man, my sin is just coming out in the pulpit. Lord, forgive me for, for one-upping Robert Greene. All right, listen. No, I mean that. I really mean that. That's a, that's a real honest prayer of confession. Anyway, back in the spirit. Some of us are not in these communities at the present time. That's understandable. I, I put myself in that bucket. I, I think what I want to do is maybe challenge us to think about that as we go into this next year. 
I think we're well aware of the fact that there, there, are, there are circumstances in life and wherever we find ourselves that I think that make that more challenging. I think, I think it is more challenging for some of us to be in those communities than it is for others. I honestly do believe that. And I think on a case-by-case case basis, I think it would be good for us to, to consider, do we have a case here of a person who, who very, very similar to the overseers, great for everyone in the church to serve tables and to see that the needs of these widows are met, but for the overall health and life of the church, these men are separated unto a vital ministry that is prayer and the ministry of the word, and that's necessary for the whole church. I think that there are some people who, who quite honestly, some of the things that they're doing for the church or out in the world for others as the church, it makes it a lot more challenging for them to find themselves devoted to this type of a, a relational setting as well. And so I, I think we need wisdom and we need the spirit of God to lead us in how we, we apply this broadly throughout the church. Uh, but I know for me, as for me in my house, I'm going to do my best to find myself in one of these this coming year. You know, and that's, Heather and I have prayed and discussed that. And that's what I'm going to try to do. And I don't know if that means, Chris, I don't know if that means forming a new one or finding an existing one. I, I often, I'll just be transparent with you guys. I often wonder sometimes as one of the pastors or overseers, how easy is it for me really to just slip into an existing community and just kind of be in there? without everybody else, without that becoming a distraction. Everybody else feeling like they're being evaluated by the, the pastor who's in the room. So I, I mean, I don't know how that will work. Uh, but, but I do know this, I'm first a Christian. Before any of you gave me any of these titles, I, I'm just a, a sinful person who needs Jesus, who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this son of God with great love in his heart came and took my place. He, he was my substitute. He came and lived before God the life that I was called to live, but I failed to give that life to God. And Jesus came down and with righteousness that I could never display before God, even if you gave me three more lifetimes to do it, Jesus lived a life before God as my substitute that God accepts. He had a righteousness before God that I can now possess as a free gift because Romans chapter 3 verse 21 tells me, now there is a righteousness apart from works, that, that God has made known, the law and the prophets testify to it, and this righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's no difference. It comes to all who believe, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely as a gift through the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. And so here, here I am, that's who I was before you gave me a title. I was a, I was a sinner who was reading John chapter 3, and then we went to Romans chapter 3, and I saw the good news of this righteousness that could be mine because of what Jesus did for me in my place. And then I, I learned that his love took him to the cross, and he was my substitute not only in life but in death. That Jesus took my place on a cross, and the judgment that I deserve from God's hand because of the life that I had lived Jesus willingly took it upon himself because he loved me and because he loved his father and because he came to do the will of his father. And he took my place on the cross and God accepted his sacrifice on my behalf and he raised Jesus from the dead as the proof that he not only accepted his payment for my sins but that he would also judge or rule the world in righteousness through the man he had appointed, Acts 17, verse 30 and 31. And that man is Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. 
And I found myself believing these things because the Holy Spirit had come into me and he had, he had allowed me to graciously believe the message of the gospel. And so I'm just like all of you. And hopefully the rest of you in here who maybe haven't believed that yet, hopefully today's the day. I'm just like all of you and I have the same needs for that type of community and fellowship that we're experiencing, that many of us are experiencing in those communities. So as we go into this year, I'll close with that. I, I think if we're going to be the kind of church we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and we're going to want to be a church that begins, number one, apply the gospel to our complaints. Uh, number two, every member has the conviction that the primary responsibility of the overseers of the church is that of prayer and the ministry of the word. And, and finally, number three, we're going to have to find ourselves in something like the Redemption Hill communities. And, I, and so I, I strongly urge you to pray about that and to think about how that impacts you this coming year. Let's pray together, and then, and then we'll have some reflection questions. Lord, we, we pray that you would help all of us to do, to do what we see the early church doing here in the book of Acts. Honestly, sincerely, even if imperfectly, living out their calling to be Christians, to be a family of God, to be ambassadors for Christ, to be, to be disciples of Jesus Christ who help to make other disciples of Jesus Christ and to be servants, not only of Christians, but also of, of all those that you send across our path. And so we, we just pray that you would help us to find ourselves in one of these communities that gives us a, a great opportunity to do that, to experience some of the great blessings that so many of us are are experiencing and talking about regularly. And, and uh, Lord, help us in this matter not to have anyone left out. I don't know exactly what that will look like in terms of structures and where everybody is and how that plays out for them and their family during the week. But my honest prayer before you is that you will help us as a people to do that, to embrace this um, and to just give you a chance to, to show through our church what that will mean as we go forward. Let it be that in 30 to 40 years, people would be able to say that not in spite of, but rather in light of Redemption Hill being in Richmond, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ increased, the number of disciples of Jesus Christ greatly multiplied, and so many became obedient to the faith. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Everybody said, amen. You'll see some reflection questions. Please take a moment to think about them and to pray.